Chapter 16 A Crook of the First Order Hayes, Ty, and Joshua had finally moved out of the child unfriendly Sugar House apartment over the summer. But the renovations of the old rectory were dragging on longer than expected, so they had temporarily relocated to Ty's parents' home. Finally, in early December, the old rectory was ready to be occupied, more or less. Construction debris still littered the property, and some work was still underway, but it was better than living out of suitcases and feeling like nomads. Movers unloaded scores of boxes into various rooms, and over the next week, the couple got to work on packing. The night of December 10th was freezing, with temperatures dropping into the mid 20s, unusually cold for southern England. A thin layer of snow dusted the ground outside the old rectory. A little before 7 a.m. the following day, Ty was starting her morning routine. There really was no hurry, as neither she nor her husband, who remained in bed, had jobs to go to. Just then, a loud banging on the front door startled them both. Hayes assumed it was construction workers showing up for work early. He got out of bed and looked out the second floor window. It was still dark outside. The sun wouldn't rise for another hour. But his curving gravel driveway was ablaze with floodlights. The snow and ice sparkled. Ty, maneuvering around the unpacked boxes in the foyer, made her way to the door. A crowd of uniformed and plain clothes police officers entered. Hayes padded downstairs in his underwear. An officer presented a warrant for his arrest. Saying he was accused of manipulating LIBOR. The officer pronounced it LIBOR. Hayes couldn't help himself. You mean LIBOR? he blurted, correcting the officer's pronunciation. Ty commanded him to return upstairs and get dressed. The police permitted him to eat a piece of toast and drink a cup of tea before they drove him the 20 traffic choked miles into central London. Their destination was the Bishopsgate Police Station. A stout cement building directly across the street from the RBS offices where Hayes had started his banking career more than a decade earlier. In a custody suite while he was waiting to be booked, he was with two other arrestees. One in handcuffs was suspected of sexual assault. The other, slim and with short graying hair, turned out to be Gilmore, who, along with Farr, Had been picked up at his Essex home in a similar raid early that morning. Hayes had never before seen Gilmore, although he'd occasionally communicated with him in electronic chats, and had always pictured him as being fat and pink faced, like Wilkinson. The surprise allowed for a moment of distraction, but not much more. Hayes was escorted to a small cell where he was left alone. There was a metal toilet and a bed with a thin mattress. Weak winter light filtered in through a small window. Hayes kept pressing a button on the wall, summoning an officer and asking for cups of tea. He spent the day pacing back and forth. Back at the old rectory, Ty called her husband's lawyers. Then she phoned Emma, who by then was at the school where she taught. When Ty told her sister what had happened, Emma was floored. She had no idea things were so serious. Ever since Hayes had been fired, the couple had downplayed the severity of the situation. 
The police, who had remained after Hayes was taken away, spent the next nine hours rifling through unpacked boxes and photo albums and carting away computers, Hayes's phone, and other electronic devices. Trying to avoid scaring her 14-month-old son, Ty managed to maintain her composure. Hayes's attorney, Lydia Johnson, arrived at the police station early that afternoon. She advised him not to answer any of the SFO's questions. At 5.30 p.m., Hayes was escorted into interview room 3 at the police station. Gilmore had already been brought into another room nearby and informed that he was suspected of conspiring with Hayes and Farr. He spent nearly three hours walking a pair of SFO investigators through 85 pages of evidence they'd gathered. Emails, chat transcripts, phone recordings. Gilmore did his best to be helpful and insisted, over and over again, that he had just been doing his job. Farr had declined to answer any of the questions during his three-hour interrogation. Two SFO investigators plopped an accordion file filled with 112 pages of documents on a metal table in front of Hayes. They explained that he had been arrested because he was suspected of conspiring with his R.P. Martin brokers to manipulate Yen Libor. Johnson read aloud a brief statement saying that Hayes didn't wish to comment at this stage, and then the agents outlined their case against Hayes. They quoted from electronic chat transcripts. They showed his trading records. They played recordings of him on the phone with other traders and brokers. The conversations peppered with what an SFO agent named Matt Ball apologetically described as quite industrial language. Each piece of evidence was followed by questions, and each time, adhering to Johnson's advice, Hayes replied, no comment. The process ground on for hours. Hayes struggled to contain his frustration. Still got another bloody 75 pages of this, yeah? He remarked at one point. We'll get through it as quickly as we can, answered the tall, lumbering ball who had worked at the agency as an investigator for the past decade. You're going to need a full day, Hayes muttered. The interrogation wrapped up around 8.30 p.m. He was offered one last chance to speak before being released on bail, with his passport held in escrow. Not at this stage, he said. I'm biting my tongue. The SFO issued a press release that morning announcing that it had arrested three British men as part of the LIBOR investigation, the first arrests anywhere in the world connected to the long-running case. The agency didn't identify the men, but it listed their ages and the countries in which they'd been arrested. It didn't take long for the media to figure out and then publish their names. Inside the Justice Department headquarters and the Bond building, Word traveled fast about the SFO's arrest of Hayes. The reaction was swift and unanimous. Outrage. The British agency clearly was trying to mark its territory. It was all the more galling because Justice not only had done much of the legwork on the investigation, but also had tipped off Green about the U.S.'s impending charges, which seemed to be the only thing that motivated the arrest. The consequences were significant. If Hayes was under criminal investigation in England, the likelihood of a British court agreeing to extradite him to the United States to face a similar case was small. 
and with his passport having been seized, there was no chance Hayes could come to the United States and cooperate with the prosecutors on his own volition. Just like that, their lead suspect, someone whom the fraud section and FBI had spent nearly two years building a case against, collecting evidence, interviewing witnesses, even placing entrapping phone calls, had essentially vanished. McInerney left Green a blistering voicemail complaining about the SFO swooping in to steal Justice's primary target. Green never called back. The U.S. State Department was enlisted to lodge a formal protest with a British cabinet secretary responsible for diplomatic affairs. The next day, the fraud section filed its criminal charges against Tom Alexander William Hayes, as well as his old nemesis, Darren, under seal in a Manhattan court. The still-secret complaint included a long affidavit by an FBI special agent summarizing the evidence and attesting to the defendant's alleged wrongdoing. Near the end, it quoted Hayes telling Alikolov not to talk to the feds. Hayes was confident that his arrest was just a big misunderstanding. Always superstitious, he blamed it on the mysterious disappearance of a lucky T-shirt emblazoned with the words, Destined for Glory, and the QPR logo. Ty, uncharacteristically, was similarly sanguine. Everything would be cleared up, they told themselves, once Hayes presented his side of the story. Sure, the things he was accused of doing might look bad to an untrained eye, but there were legitimate explanations. Everyone in the industry was doing more or less the same thing. Hayes was following orders. His bosses knew what he was up to. They didn't object. In fact, they were doing it too. The day after the arrest, Ty discovered a small round hole in the ceiling of the master bedroom, and she noticed that their baby monitor had started producing lots of noisy feedback. Hayes went out and bought a disposable phone. From his yard, he called Johnson and told her that he was going to scour the house for electronic bugs and destroy any he found. Don't do anything of the sort, Johnson warned. It turned out that one of her colleagues, when he arrived at the old rectory following Hayes' arrest, had spotted a police officer placing what he thought might have been a bug on one of their Mercedes cars. She told him and Ty not to talk about the case on the phone or in the house or car. At Johnson's suggestion, they paid a former British intelligence officer 3,500 pounds to sweep the house for eavesdropping devices. He blasted classical music to trigger sound-activated devices while he walked from room to room, scanning the house with eavesdropping detection equipment. The search came up empty. Hayes, feeling better, mugged for a goofy photo wearing the ex-spy's headphones and other equipment. The relative calm was reinforced a few days later. Hayes had hired a hotshot attorney to represent him in the United States, Stephen Tyrell, who was McInerney's predecessor as the chief of justice's fraud section, and now was a high-priced criminal defense lawyer. Tyrell set up a meeting with his former colleagues, whom he described as his old friends, on the night of December 18th, he reported back to Hayes and Johnson with good news. 
The U.S. prosecutors were furious with the SFO for not giving them a heads up on Hayes's arrest. But, Tyrell said, he would be very surprised if justice was poised to take action against Hayes. It just doesn't seem that they would be at a point where they would be ready. The next day, Hayes and Ty stayed home working on his defense. They went through all the questions the SFO had asked him at the police station, which provided a helpful glimpse of the case prosecutors were assembling. Sitting together at the kitchen table, the couple pulled together answers and explanations to each query. Then, in early afternoon, big news landed. UBS had agreed to pay an enormous $1.5 billion to settle the LIBOR manipulation case. The deal, which made UBS the second bank following Barclays to resolve the investigation, was the product of weeks of frenzied negotiations between the Swiss bank and U.S. and British authorities who wanted to announce a settlement before the Christmas holidays. UBS's punishment was more than three times larger than the one imposed on Barclays, and the bank's Japanese subsidiary had agreed to plead guilty to criminal charges. That represented a minor breakthrough for American prosecutors, who had managed to overcome some of their fears of charging a company, albeit only a very small part of a very large company that wasn't based in the United States. UBS's spin doctors described the episode as the work of a few bad apples, not the latest devastating indictment of the entire company's practices and culture. In a briefing session with journalists before the deal was even announced, a senior executive branded Hayes as the entire LIBOR scandal's evil mastermind. It was just UBS's bad luck to have hired such a criminal genius. When the settlement was announced, Ty shifted gears. She printed out a copy of the documents detailing the U.S. and British government's cases against the Swiss bank. With Joshua balanced on her lap, she went through the files, marking them up with a yellow highlighter. She was relieved. They made it clear that LIBOR rigging was widespread. Her husband wasn't even named. The reports from various regulators were sprinkled with vague references to the involvement of unnamed higher-ups at UBS. It seemed like a get-out-of-jail-free card for her husband. After all, who could blame Hayes for doing something that everyone, including his superiors, knew about? For a few happy hours, the family's crisis seemed to be easing. She and her husband had no idea that UBS was already presenting Hayes as a master conman who manipulated not only the market, but also his own innocent employer. That evening, Ty was in her shiny new kitchen, preparing a joint of roasted lamb for dinner. Hayes sat in what he had already designated as his favorite chair in the breakfast nook just off the kitchen, puttering on his Apple laptop. A news alert popped up. He clicked the link. A video of the U.S. Attorney General at a press conference in Washington started playing. Hayes watched for a few moments, a horrified lump rising in his throat. Sarah, I've been charged by the U.S., he announced. It didn't compute. What did you say? she asked. What did you say? she asked again, her voice rising to a shriek. What did you say?
I've been charged by the U.S., he finally repeated. His face went gray. His eyes started twitching. Ty's legs wobbled. Then she vomited. Late that afternoon, Roger Darren was at home in a Zurich suburb when his phone rang. On the line was Bruce Baird, his UBS-appointed lawyer in Washington. Baird was best known for his time as a federal prosecutor in New York when he led the criminal prosecution of Michael Milken. He subsequently became a white-collar defense attorney. Baird had known that Darren was in legal jeopardy in the LIBOR case because justice had refused to grant him immunity. In fact, the investigators hadn't even interviewed him. That couldn't be a good sign. But Baird had doubted his client would actually be charged anytime soon, at least not without someone placing a courtesy call to the well-connected lawyer. But when Baird tuned in to Justice's press conference, he heard the prosecutors announcing that they were charging two men, Hayes and Darren. Baird was stunned and angry. He took a deep breath and called his client, bracing for an awful reaction. To the lawyer's surprise, though, Darren's response was muted. He seemed to take it in stride. Perhaps, Baird figured, it was just his unemotional Swiss-German nature. Or maybe he was in a state of shock. Baird had learned over the years that it was nearly impossible to predict how people would react to horrible news. And this certainly was horrible news. The next day, Hayes traipsed into London for a noon meeting with his lawyers. A soft rain was falling. The American charges called for an immediate pivot in the team's legal strategy. Notwithstanding the SFO's arrest, the United States planned to seek Hayes' extradition in January. The top priority became avoiding being shipped off to the United States, where he figured he would inevitably be convicted and spend decades rotting in a violent prison, thousands of miles from his family. Now, his lawyers told him, the key was to lay the groundwork for being charged by the SFO before he could be extradited to the United States. Under British double jeopardy rules, that would largely take extradition off the table. Already that morning, Pierce had called Ball at the SFO. He said the Hayes camp was eager to set up a meeting as soon as possible to discuss the possibility of cooperating. We don't want there to be a tug of war over Tom, Pierce said, adding that he agreed with the SFO that his client should face the charges against him in London. SFO wants you here and not going anywhere else, Pierce reported to Hayes a few hours later, framing this as good news in a bad situation. Despite the criminal charges, the settlement with UBS was not met with relief or acclaim by the public. Indeed, it seemed yet another example of a big bank buying an indulgence. In early January, a British parliamentary committee held hearings on the deal. A number of past and present UBS executives were called to testify, and following the playbook, they pointed the finger at one former employee in particular. A British lawmaker, Nigel Lawson, blasted Hayes as a crook of the first order. A top UBS executive at the hearing, Andrea Orsell, smiled and nodded in agreement. 
UBS's head of compliance, Andrew Williams, said that clearly his conduct was reprehensible. I think it's fair to say we were all disgusted by it. Alex Wilmot Sitwell, who had helped persuade Hayes not to jump to Goldman back in 2008 and had now become a top executive at Bank of America, was another witness. I don't recall him, Wilmot Sitwell said of Hayes. I never met him. For good measure, he added that he wasn't even sure Hayes worked at UBS at the time that Wilmot Sitwell was co-head of the investment bank. Hayes watched the testimony on TV, not believing the dissembling he was hearing. Karsten Ken Geeter, Wilmot Sitwell's counterpart, who had played such an active role convincing Hayes that he was a star and shouldn't defect to a rival, wasn't even summoned to the hearing. Hayes began to question whether he could trust his lawyers. He certainly didn't trust the SFO, and that left him worried about striking a deal with the agency. What if the SFO abandoned me? He asked his lawyers. Even his mother seemed to desert him. Sandy had never liked the idea of her son working for a bank, and the current mess, she concluded, was the inevitable outcome of him joining a despicable industry. Sandy was so angry about the shame that Hayes had brought on her family that, one day, in early 2013, she refused to babysit Joshua. Her lack of support opened a deep rift within the family. How can I convince a jury that I'm innocent if my own mom doesn't believe it? Hayes asked himself. Ty was irate and would remain so for years. Hayes and Sandy wouldn't speak to each other for the rest of 2013. One night, unable to sleep, Hayes searched the internet for Brits who had faced similar situations. He came across David Birmingham, one of the so-called NatWest Three investment bankers who were extradited to face U.S. criminal charges for their roles in the Enron scandal. Hayes emailed Birmingham, asking if they could talk. Birmingham had been following Hayes's case in the media. He invited Hayes to come out to his home in Oxfordshire, a northern exurb of London. When they met, Birmingham told Hayes his bizarre tale. After Enron imploded, he and his two British colleagues had been investigated for personally enriching themselves to the tune of millions of dollars in a complex deal with Enron and some of its executives. When the Justice Department charged the bankers in 2002 in Houston, Birmingham's lawyers urged the SFO to investigate and file its own charges against him so he could avoid extradition. The SFO refused, so Birmingham's lawyers sued, perhaps the only time in history that someone had sued a government to force it to file criminal charges against the plaintiff. The ploy failed, although the three former bankers' public images evolved at least slightly from greedy, womanizing buccaneers into victims of America's imperialistic approach to enforcing its laws all over the world. In 2006, they were sent to the United States, where they pleaded guilty and were sent to jail before being shipped back to England to serve the remainder of their 37-month sentences. Birmingham, clean-cut and looking every bit the preppy retired investment banker, told Hayes the key was to find a way to defuse the U.S. situation. Otherwise, it could literally ruin his life. The United States would stop at nothing to get its hands on him.
If those charges are out there, you can never leave the country again, he warned. Driving home, Hayes was struck by the anger still burning in Birmingham's eyes, years later, at having pleaded guilty to a crime he didn't feel guilty of. Nonetheless, his lawyers were hard at work trying to put Hayes on a path to do just that, cooperating with the SFO and pleading guilty to its anticipated criminal charges to take U.S. extradition off the table. It was a matter of some urgency. In mid-January, the American Embassy in London contacted the SFO to notify it that the United States planned to move forward with an extradition request. In Washington, Tyrell put out feelers to justice to see if they'd be interested in having a dialogue with Hayes. Maybe they could strike a deal. Justice was at best lukewarm. So, at a meeting with the SFO, Hayes's lawyers made their pitch for their client to be admitted into a special cooperation program, normally reserved for members of organized crime, that would ensure he got credit for assisting. I can imagine he would be quite a useful person, Johnson told them. The SFO's Stuart Alford agreed that Hayes would be valuable. The agency is keen to do all it can to look at not the low-lying fruit, but to take it beyond that, he said. Cases can be jumped forward with help from the inside. On the morning of January 29th, Hayes headed into London to sit down with the SFO, the initial step in becoming a cooperating witness. Hayes's lawyers and the SFO had reached an informal deal. He would plead guilty and agree to testify against his alleged co-conspirators. The agreement unofficially called for a sentence of about 20 months of prison time, although technically that decision would be up to a judge. Hayes's lawyers told him that, if all went well, he'd probably serve less than a year in jail plus some time with an electronic monitoring device. It didn't sound fun, but it beat the alternative. First, though, Hayes had to convince the SFO that he would be sufficiently open and honest that his cooperation warranted a deal. It was called a cleansing interview. He had to come clean about all his wrongdoing and provide the investigators with an overview of the kind of stuff he could tell them. It was essentially an audition and it would extend over a couple of grueling days. Johnson had coached him, especially about how to respond to the SFO's inevitable question about whether he had acted dishonestly. The key was to sound candid, not defensive. During rehearsals, though, Hayes kept veering off onto tangents and struggling to remember exactly what to accept responsibility for. Johnson, desperate to avoid a disaster, emailed him a few talking points. I accept that I was influencing a rate that was intended to be completely independent and devoid of any influence other than that of an independent submitter, the note read. Clearly, I did this to benefit the bank's position. When Ty left her husband at the train station that morning, he looked like he was about to cry. I'm so proud of you, she texted him. He responded that there was nothing to be proud of. On board the train, he looked for the printout of Johnson's talking points. It wasn't in his bag. Panicked, he called Ty, who had just arrived home. 
I don't know how to answer the dishonesty question, he told her. Ty ordered him to calm down. She rifled through his papers and found the missing printout. She typed its contents into her phone and emailed it to Hayes, who received it just before getting off the train in London. Inside the SFO's offices, a ring of interview rooms was arranged around a central atrium. To block out noise from the busy street below, the rooms were windowless, creating an intimidating, claustrophobic effect, even for experienced lawyers. With recording equipment switched on, the meeting got underway. Hayes confirmed that he would be willing to testify against his former colleagues. Then came the questions. The first topic concerned whether Hayes had ever previously committed a crime. The answer was surprisingly complicated. Hayes admitted that he'd been busted speeding on multiple occasions and, in order to avoid hefty fines, had taken two speed awareness classes in a three-year period. That might have violated rules limiting the number of times an individual could escape a penalty, Hayes said, and he admitted that he hadn't paid his taxes when he left Tokyo in 2010. A few weeks later, he wired money to a friend in Japan who paid the taxes on his behalf. Then Hayes started coming clean about his misadventures in banking. He noted the accusations he'd faced at both RBS and RBC when he left. He admitted that he repeatedly had violated UBS's internal policy governing gifts and expenses. He had taken Ty out to dinners that cost up to 1,000 pounds and had brokers reimburse him. He hadn't declared the gifts to UBS. Asked if he admitted having acted dishonestly by manipulating LIBOR, he answered with one word. Yes. I probably deserve to be sitting here because, you know, I made concerted efforts to influence LIBOR, he told the SFO in a session a couple of days later. And, you know, although I was operating within a system or participating within a system in which it was commonplace, you know, ultimately I was someone who was a serial offender within that. At the end of the day, my trading book directly benefited from that and that directly had some impact on me as an individual, both within my seniority within the bank and my standing within the bank, my potential remuneration. Just like that, Hayes had admitted to being a central part of what looked like a vast criminal conspiracy. He was following his lawyer's advice, but that advice, given to a panicked, desperate man who, it would become clear, hadn't come to terms with what it meant to accept responsibility for his crimes, would later look questionable at best. Now there was no turning back. It would take nearly two nail-biting months for the SFO to let Hayes know whether he would be admitted into the cooperating witness program. In the meantime, the SFO asked Hayes's lawyers to please not let the Justice Department know that they were talking. After having two of its employees arrested, R.P. Martin scrambled to circle the wagons, but not around the two suspect brokers. The first step was to fire Farr. His last day was December 31st, 2012. He didn't leave empty-handed. On his way out, he was handed a nearly $100,000 termination payment.
The remainder of an $88,000 loan from a couple of years earlier also was written off. I wish you all the very best in the future, the firm's HR manager said in a farewell letter. Gilmore lasted a bit longer. In mid-June 2013, he was instructed to attend a disciplinary hearing in R.P. Martin's increasingly busy boardroom. Beforehand, the firm sent him a memory stick containing recordings of phone calls and transcripts of his instant message chats, as well as a summary of his May 2011 meeting, which Gilmore had signed, attesting to its accuracy. In an attached letter, R.P. Martin's chairman said the hearing would consider whether, in the light of the attached recordings and transcripts, the information you gave at the meeting on 9 May 2011 was true and accurate. Gilmore's lawyers tried to get the meeting delayed or canceled, citing the ongoing criminal investigation. It didn't work. The meeting took place on June 14th, which also turned out to be Gilmore's last day of work. Going forward, he would do occasional work for a friend as a house painter in training. Then there was Lee Aaron. It had been a miserable year for him. His mother had spent the past 12 months waging a slow, losing battle for her life. She died in February 2013. Between hospice visits, Aaron submitted to interrogations with R.P. Martin's lawyers. He insisted he hadn't done anything wrong despite records indicating that he tried to call in LIBOR-related favors on behalf of his pal Danziger. The two remained friends. Fired by RBS, Danziger had become a recruiter in the finance industry, and they occasionally met up for beers and to discuss the investigation. Aaron said that he'd just been telling Danziger whatever he wanted to hear. And the switch trades? Those were nothing more than a prized customer's way of saying thank you. What about the vast amounts he was spending to entertain Danziger? From 2007 through 2010, the broker had incurred about 180,000 pounds of expenses. Aaron didn't really see anything wrong with it. Sure, it seemed like a lot, but that was spread over 48 months, or, he said, about 2,000 pounds a month. His math was wrong. It was closer to 4,000 pounds. He guaranteed to the investigators that he had earned far more for the company than he spent on entertainment. His boss, Cliff King, seconded the argument. But Aaron had been warned about his behavior in the past, and now, with regulators breathing down the firm's neck, he was suspended. A month later, he received a letter from R.P. Martin that accused him of having been directly or indirectly involved in, or connected with, or were aware of, and failed to raise with management, attempts to manipulate LIBOR. He resigned, in exchange for R.P. Martin waiving any contractual restrictions on him, joining a rival firm. In resigning, I do not admit the allegations raised against me by the company in its recent disciplinary investigation, he wrote in a July 15th letter. Aaron, by then, had lined up a new job as a broker at BGC Partners, which conducted a routine background check. When asked why he left, R.P. Martin's compliance director responded, 
He was suspended in relation to activities linked to the alleged Yen LIBOR manipulation and subsequently resigned. BGC hired him anyway. On March 27th, the SFO formally accepted Hayes's application to join the cooperation program. The agency's investigators had high hopes. Hayes had helped them identify dozens of alleged co conspirators. The plan was for them to be tried in groups of three or four at a time, with Hayes the star witness at each trial. The SFO also envisioned him serving as an expert witness in LIBOR cases against individuals who weren't part of his network. For the prosecutors, he was a human gold mine. Hayes was relieved to no longer have to worry about being sent off to the United States. It felt a little bit like he'd just been given an antidote after being bit by a poisonous snake. After he was arrested, Hayes had put an end to his online trading. He had made a bundle of money, more than enough to cover the old rectory's renovation. But he knew himself. His life was in too much turmoil at the moment. He wasn't in the right mindset to continue. Still, the prolific volume of his trading had made him a prized customer. And, one day early in 2013, an online brokerage firm tried to lure him with a sweet offer. If he opened an account, the firm would match his first 5,000 pounds of profits. Hayes took the bait. He created a new account, deposited about 1 million pounds, and resumed trading, figuring his gains would help pay his soaring legal bills. But after a brief period of making money, his trade started going wrong. He soon lost 100,000 pounds. Before long, the account had dwindled to 500,000 pounds. Hayes considered cutting his losses, but that wasn't in his DNA. Ty said that if he thought he could turn things around, he should keep trading. So he did. One evening in March, Hayes returned from a day of being grilled by the SFO. It's gone, he informed Ty. The combination of his trading losses and the lawyer's bills had exhausted the entire one million pounds. Hayes sank into a deep depression, the losses cutting to the bone of his self-identity as a skilled trader. He was so out of sorts that he stopped going to QPR matches. He gave his lucky pandas to Joshua and threw away all the polo shirts his brokers had given him over the years. The memories were just too painful. It seemed like only weeks ago that the couple had been rich. Now they were scrounging for money. They asked Ty's parents to pay back 5,000 pounds that they'd borrowed. They sold Hayes' Mercedes convertible. Robin returned his Mercedes to Hayes, who sold it too. Robin actually was relieved to no longer have the fanciest vehicle in his school's parking lot. Ty took out a mortgage on the old rectory a process that required the couple to transfer ownership of the house under her name. Before long, they realized that wasn't enough and started trying to sell their beloved home, only a few months after they'd moved in. Ty reluctantly decided to go back to work, putting on ice her ambition to have a second child. Shearman and Sterling, the law firm where she'd worked before moving to Tokyo, agreed to take her back. 
rejoining the working population shortly, she announced on Facebook. Not much seemed to be going right for the family. A year earlier, Hayes had spotted a small red lump on Ty's back under her bra strap. A succession of doctors said it was nothing to worry about, but the lump seemed to be growing. Finally, a doctor diagnosed it as cancer, a benign, treatable type of cancer, but cancer nonetheless. One day, Hayes drove Ty to the hospital to have the lump cauterized. On the way home, on the highway, their car sputtered to a stop. It was out of gas. Hayes was so distracted that he didn't even pull over onto the shoulder. The car just slowed to a halt in the middle of the highway. Other vehicles whizzed past, blaring their horns. Ty was scared. This was their life now, stalled and treacherous. Hayes regularly spent entire days in the FSO's offices giving recorded testimony. By the end, he would log about 82 hours of interviews. The transcripts would run nearly 4,000 pages. To maintain secrecy and avoid tipping off any of the men whom he was expected to testify against, he signed into the visitor's log in the SFO's lobby each morning using the pseudonym Stan Bowles, borrowed from a 1970s QPR star. At first, the interviews were cathartic. Hayes enjoyed talking to a captive audience about markets and trading. He spent much of that spring walking the investigators through his career history and how he made money. He painted detailed portraits of bank trading technology, the mechanics of the derivatives market, how his Excel models worked, how traders and brokers communicated with each other, how traders like him thought and felt. The first thing you think is, where's the edge? Where can I make a bit more money? How can I push the boundaries, maybe, you know, a bit of a gray area? Push the edge of the envelope, he explained. He added, the point is, you're greedy. You want every little bit of money that you can possibly get, because, like I say, that is how you're judged. That's your performance metric. And then, one by one, Hayes went through all the people he'd worked with over the years, the colleagues and brokers and competitors whom he'd chewed out or begged for favors or bossed around. Anytime he was tempted to hold back or spin a conversation in a slightly more favorable light, he remembered what was riding on this process. If the SFO perceived him as being dishonest or uncooperative, the agency could pull the plug on the interviews and throw him to the American wolves. Everything hinged on him convincing the SFO to charge him. And so Hayes sat back and unburdened himself. He repeatedly admitted that he had acted dishonestly to skew LIBOR. Everyone had. Footnote. The SFO team also got ample doses of Hayes' oddball nature. At one point, explaining why he didn't like to manage people, he said, mainly because people are variables that don't behave in predictable ways. And, you know, they're difficult to manage. And I'd rather manage risk than people. End footnote. When the SFO drew up an early draft of the charges it planned to file against Hayes, each count listed his co-conspirators. Two of the names were especially noteworthy. 
Karsten Kengeter and Brian McCappen. When Hayes saw the two men on there, he felt a little better. They were both high-ranking executives, for starters, who, unlike Hayes, remained employed in the industry. And the fact that the SFO was convinced that senior executives conspired with him seemed to validate his argument that everything he was doing, regardless of its criminality, was condoned by his superiors. The initial relief of being admitted into the SFO's cooperation program and the enjoyment he derived from blabbing to the amicable ball and his SFO teammates soon gave way to depression and anger. Hayes got heartburn every time he thought about testifying against men like Farr and Reed. He couldn't bear the thought of one day having to tell Joshua that he had admitted to being a criminal. He and Ty both felt he had been railroaded into cooperating, the victim of America's overzealous law enforcement system. And the more he explained his tactics to the SFO, the more he convinced himself that he was innocent, or, at least, no guiltier than anyone else. After all, whose fault was it if he did what he'd been told was okay? How could he be blamed if everyone was doing more or less the same thing? This was just the way the system worked. He started smoking cigarettes. At home, he spent hours brooding in a cold bath or outside staring at a tree, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning. His sex drive vanished. He stormed around the kitchen, opening and slamming shut cupboard doors. Sometimes Ty would wake up in the middle of the night and find her husband staring at her. Other times, he questioned whether his life was worthwhile. I'll kill myself if you want me to, he offered. Would it be better for you? Once he mentioned the possibility of suicide in front of Joshua. Ty told friends she took the threat seriously, that he needed to be watched all the time. She pushed Hayes to see a therapist or a psychiatrist who could prescribe antidepressants. He refused. Joshua grew increasingly clingy as the family's stress levels rose. Sometimes he asked why Daddy was so angry or why he had forgotten to feed him or take him to the potty even when he asked again and again. It was becoming clear that Joshua couldn't be left alone with his father, a problem for many reasons, but especially now as Ty was returning to work. In April, she made the painful decision to take Joshua and move into her parents' house. The marriage seemed to be unraveling. Ty checked on Hayes on weekends, and during the week, she dispatched her sister to stop by the old rectory. Every day around noon, Emma would stick her head in the door and say hi to her brother-in-law before getting back in her car and driving away. Nobody said it aloud, but she knew that one of her responsibilities was to make sure Hayes hadn't hurt himself. She had heard him threaten once to throw himself in front of an oncoming subway train, though she grimly figured he was more likely to commit suicide at home. Without telling her sister, Emma researched online how to rescue or at least detach someone who had hung himself. When she walked in the door each day, she worried whether she would have to put her new knowledge to use. All the while, Hayes kept trekking into London to talk to the SFO. 
on May 21st, sitting in one of the closet-like interview rooms, he learned that his so-called friend Reed had long been misleading him. An investigator read aloud an email in which Reed told Goodman to never let him know that you send a physical run-through out. I lie about the levels all the time, and it makes our life easier. Then the agent handed Hayes a printout of the email to see for himself. Bloody hell, Hayes stammered. That's the first time I've seen that. He grasped for possible explanations for the deception. He couldn't believe his own naivete, which shows you, actually, you think that you know everything that's going on, but quite often you don't, he told the SFO. The next day, Hayes' interrogators turned to page 146 of a bundle of documents, a numbered to-do list that had been stored on a shared computer drive at UBS, which a number of managers had access to. Hayes had never seen the documents before, but as he examined it, he realized that it was essentially an instruction manual for the bank's LIBOR submitters. It showed that the UBS traders who specialized in interest rate derivatives linked to euros and dollars were in charge of submitting their own LIBOR data. They didn't have to go through an intermediary in another department, as Hayes had to do with Darren, in order to tinker with the bank's LIBOR submissions. But the real revelation was the explicit instruction to the traders about exactly how to take their derivatives positions into account when setting LIBOR. It was just so flagrant. It's hilarious, Hayes said, but the humor quickly faded. You see, this is what winds me up here. Like I'm just getting hung drawn and slaughtered by this bank. And then there's this official document for publishing the LIBOR rates where they're just blatant. Again, everyone was doing it, so why was he being singled out? Footnote. UBS would later say that the instructions didn't represent official company policy and must have been created by a rogue employee. End footnote. That evening, Hayes showed up at Ty's parents' house so worked up he could barely speak. If UBS was officially trying to manipulate LIBOR, how could his actions be construed as criminal, he sputtered. Hayes emailed his lawyers. He said the new evidence made him wonder if he really should be pleading guilty. In the course of the SFO interviews, I have seen very little to harm me, but a large amount to support what I have told you from the beginning that this was just part of doing my job. After a couple of days with no response, the lawyers proposed meeting to discuss his concerns. Hayes, by then, had grown discouraged. I am aware that basically I have little to no option in relation to this. By June, as the interview process entered its final stage, Hayes' admissions of guilt were growing more equivocal. Asked repeatedly whether he was aware at the time that he was acting dishonestly, he responded, I was aware of that I was being dishonest, but on a micro scale, on a scale that was not perceptible to people, that was not really influencing the rates outside of what I would term my permissible range. This was an important concept, at least to Hayes and some of his former colleagues. Their argument was that because each bank's data was supposed to be based on what it thought it would cost to borrow money from another bank on any given day, 
there was no absolute precise rate, but rather a narrow band of numbers drawn from a variety of information sources, and somewhere within that band probably lay the truth. But picking a specific figure down to multiple decimal places was arbitrary. As long as the LIBOR submitter chose a data point from within that band, it was hard to argue his numbers were technically wrong. Not that this represented much ethical justification for what Hayes and his confederates had been doing. Several days later, Hayes and Johnson returned to the Bishopsgate police station, this time for him to be formally charged. To their relief, no reporters or photographers were waiting outside. At 8.25 a.m., a police sergeant read aloud the charges against him. Eight counts of conspiracy to defraud, involving his time at UBS and Citigroup. Because LIBOR manipulation hadn't itself been a crime when Hayes was a traitor, the SFO turned to the conspiracy to defraud statute, which outlawed entering into agreements with the intent of ripping off another party. Hayes and Johnson exited through a back door and decamped to a nearby Starbucks. Hayes blew up, months of frustration boiling over. He berated Johnson about the jail sentence he was likely facing, and for allowing him to fall victim to what struck him as a politicized process. The charges had been filed the day before the Parliamentary Banking Standards Commission, convened in the wake of the Barclays settlement a year earlier, was due to release its final report. Among other things, the report recommended stiffened criminal penalties for misconduct. Hayes suspected the timing of his charges was not coincidental. And, to Hayes's disappointment, unlike the SFO's earlier draft document, the actual charges didn't name any of his alleged co-conspirators, only him. Yet the bigger picture was that this was exactly what he had set out to accomplish. Now that he had been charged in Britain, the chances of being extradited to the United States receded. He later apologized to Johnson for losing his temper. Two days later, Hayes was summoned to an arraignment hearing. It was his first public appearance. Not many people knew what he looked like, so the swarm of photographers outside the London courthouse, eager for a shot of the notorious criminal mastermind, snapped photos of all similarly aged men who entered the building. Hayes showed up wearing khakis and a dark blue button-down shirt, untucked. Standing in the glass-enclosed defendant stock, a staple of British courtrooms, Hayes confirmed his name and address. A new court date was set, and then it was over. It wasn't yet time for him to enter a plea. He and Johnson walked out together. A horde of photographers and camera crews chased them across a busy street. One morning that summer, Ty woke up and couldn't move her left arm. It was completely frozen. The medical explanation was that calcium deposits in her shoulder joint, built up over many years, had finally reached a tipping point and immobilized her arm. Emma, acting as nurse, thought the real trigger was stress. In any case, how could Ty juggle a toddler and a job with one arm? She couldn't. She felt she had no choice but to move back in with her husband. 
Hayes was overjoyed to have her and Joshua back. But things remained bad. One night, Emma slept over. In the middle of the night, she was awoken by the sound of her sister screaming. She raced to the master bedroom, queasily expecting that Hayes had hurt himself. Ty told her to go back to bed. She had just had a nightmare. Emma suspected that wasn't the full story. On another summer evening, pacing back and forth in the old rectory's open-plan kitchen, Hayes mentioned the idea of driving the car off a cliff, a common refrain for months now. I'm going to do it, he declared. Ty was reaching the end of her tether. Go on then, she snapped. Hayes was starting to entertain a radical idea, pleading not guilty and fighting the British charges. He increasingly wanted his day in court. He wanted to be able to tell his son that, even if he ended up in jail, he had never admitted that he was a criminal. And Ty had given an ultimatum, either accept his plight or do something about it. If he remained angry, she would divorce him. One July night, Hayes couldn't sleep. He eventually quit trying and, starting around 3 a.m., sent a barrage of stream-of-consciousness text messages to an acquaintance. I feel like I am sleepwalking the path of least resistance. I don't know the odds, but I know the truth, and I know that I didn't believe what I was doing was dishonest. In some senses, I don't care if I get a worse punishment, at least I went down fighting. I have never denied doing what I did. But how can any sane person really think my actions dishonest in my mind, given how open and transparent I was in absolutely every regard? I never sought to hide anything ever, was never told I should not be doing it, was never trained, was directly instructed. So many people got paid from the money I made, and I am going to jail. It seems so unjust. I did not do anything for personal enrichment. Yes, indirectly, I would benefit, but this was so minor in the greater scheme of how much money I made the bank. In short, I am not a rogue operator or bad person. I was a 26-year-old in a high-pressured job looking to do the best I could, and now I have society trying to retrospectively apply some sort of moral code. Well, why don't they go back to the mid-90s when this started whilst I was still at school? The public misconception driven by ignorant press and incompetent regulators seeking to deflect from their own shortcomings is staggering. Eight hours later, Johnson met with the SFO investigators again. They were pushing for an ironclad commitment that Hayes would plead guilty. Hayes had told Johnson that he was contemplating fighting the charges. She thought it was an awful idea. He had given 82 hours of taped interviews, including countless confessions. The SFO will crush you, she cautioned. But in the SFO's offices, Johnson deflected the investigator's questions about her client's intentions. There is a concern about documents we have not seen so far, she warned them. She cited emails in which Hayes had been instructed to push LIBOR up or down. Emails that her client insisted existed, but that apparently hadn't been disclosed to the SFO. 
The agency, in its haste to throw together an open and shut case, hadn't even asked UBS to hand over all documents. We didn't want everything in the way the Americans did, one investigator rationalized. I'm not reading too much into the fact that UBS have withheld material. In July, the SFO filed criminal charges against Farr and Gilmore. The agency assumed Hayes would plead guilty and testify against all of his co-conspirators, with a witness of his caliber, who in their right mind would fight the charges. And that was good, because aside from its endless interviews with Hayes, the SFO hadn't done a whole lot of investigating over the past year. Not wanting to waste time or money interviewing second-tier witnesses, the agency had even declined offers from lawyers for some of Hayes's former colleagues who were offering to help, part of an effort to ensure that it was the British authorities, not the Americans, who charged their clients. One of the exceptions was Brent Davies. His life had changed dramatically in the two years since ICAP cut him loose. One day, he had been walking down the street in London's suburbs when a film producer for a miniseries about the Vikings spotted him. The hulking, wild-haired Davies looked the part. Would he like to be an extra? Why not, Davies figured. It's not like he had a job. So they suited him up in chainmail and a sword. He fit right in. Now Davies was fishing for more acting work. But the formerly gregarious, charismatic man was stressed and miserable. Nonetheless, in July, he managed to tell his story to the SFO including how he hadn't thought anyone would take his LIBOR-moving requests seriously. At the half-day interview, the SFO hinted that Hayes was pleading guilty and had agreed to testify against his former brokers. In August, the SFO started digging into Hayes' assets, not least the old rectory, to see if they should be confiscated as the fruits of his crimes. This shouldn't have surprised Hayes, but it tipped him into a wild rage. They're trying to destroy me, but I'll go down fighting, he fumed to his lawyers. If you plead not guilty, prospects of acquittal are reduced, David Williams cautioned, a bizarre warning, since the chances of acquittal were zero if he pleaded guilty. But I get to say my side of the story, Hayes shot back. Remember that you are at risk of doubling or tripling your prison sentence. Johnson said. Hayes countered that, if convicted, he didn't think it was likely he'd end up getting sentenced to more than five years, since I didn't take any personal benefit from the situation. For someone who felt such comfort in numbers, he was wildly off, not to mention exercising faulty logic and incorrectly claiming that he hadn't benefited. Each of the eight counts he was charged with carried a possible sentence of up to 10 years in prison. And it hadn't fully dawned on Hayes that he was being cast not only as the LIBOR ringleader, but also as a symbol of the darkest tendencies of the entire banking industry. You're the scapegoat, and so there is a deterrent aspect, Johnson pointed out. Still, Hayes decided, there could be no guilty plea until the SFO took off the table the threat of seizing his family's assets. But the SFO was unlikely to take that off the table until he pleaded guilty. It was a stalemate.
The traitor in me wants to plead guilty, Hayes told an acquaintance in mid-August. My gut says fight. He went with his gut.